Greetings, Hope Church. Thanks for joining us this morning as we jump back into our series entitled Entrusted to You as we work through the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And we are in the last three verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1 in a section I'm entitling, coming straight from the text, Wage the Good Warfare. Two major thoughts I think that this text presents to us that I want to share with you this morning as we look at God's Word and we sit under it as disciples of Jesus. Let me just pray as we jump in. Father, we come again this Sunday to, to worship you. Uh, I thank you for our brothers and sisters who are engaging with our church family, even if they're not gathering with us on Sunday mornings. I pray you keep them safe and well. And that, Lord, uh, in due course, as they feel safe and are able, would come back and gather with the family of God. But thank you for this resource and provision uh, for servants like Melissa and Jim and Julia and others who help make this possible for us to pr provide this for our people. So just guide us now as we sit under your word this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, clearly the first chapter of Timothy is serving as this larger introduction, and it fits well even at a canonical level, meaning in light of the whole collection of these three books called the Pastoral Letters, because a lot of this introduction then explains the kind of things Paul is going to explain not only to Timothy but to Titus in the rest of the Pastoral Letters. So you could almost view these last verses as the conclusion of the introduction, where he goes back to his language of this charge. There's, there we are in verse 18. Hope you have your notes open or your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. Paul exhorts Timothy, this language of charge, maybe we'd say instruction. It's an exhortation. Paul exhorts Timothy not to trifle with his assignment, not to, not to take Paul's instructions, call them commands, lightly. It's an order from the commander-in-chief, in this case, from God. He's returning to his exhortation that he gave in verse 3, what we saw as we began this series. But in between verse 3 and verse 18, in verse 18 he repeats that charge. Between those verses, we had about 15 verses of Paul encouraging Timothy by his own testimony of God's grace. What I love about Paul as a teacher, which is what all of us should be saying to our brothers and sisters, is this is not a work that we do in our own power and our, our own strength. Paul is exhorting Timothy to be faithful with the command God has given him, the assignment that God has given to him, but he couches it in the context of his own story where God has worked through him and his brokenness and his inabilities. It's always been about God's grace and God's power, Timothy. And Paul is going to explain further details about this charge entrusted to Timothy throughout the letters. And in many ways, we need to see how that charge is to us as a church. In fact, that would be my first point to us this morning, would be this, Christians, like Timothy, Christians are exhorted to wage the good warfare with the resources God provides. In fact, as you listen to this charge in verses 18 to 20, you will see that Paul gives three resources. He mentions three resources that are there for Timothy to use. 
for the war that he's been assigned to go into battle. Let me read the text that was already read for us and give some nuance as I jump into those three resources. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. There's our title for this sermon, and there's the thrust of this charge. There's a war. There's a battle. Verse 19 says how. By, we could add, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In those three verses, there's a, there's a lot of meat there, and there's some sharp language. Spiritual war, Satan being involved, those who have left the faith and the faithful and the mission and the battle and have been handed over to Satan. A lot of things there. So let me give you what I think are the three resources God provides for Christians as they engage in the good warfare about which Paul speaks. The first is this, personal support. And when I say personal support, I want you to think of pastors, of mentors, of even your local church community. Look at, look at how Paul describes Timothy. Paul speaks of Timothy as a son, a child. The ESV translates it as my child. The NIV translates it as my son. A pastor mentor who exhorts him with his heart. The, the feel of this text is somebody who loves Timothy, not someone who's removed, sending a memo down the chain of command to some servant or worker, employee who's supposed to work, but a father, a coach, a mentor who's passionate about the mission and has come passionate for the worker and wants them to know that this exhortation is something God has given and he is with them in this. He's walking with him. Our Christian life, brothers and sisters, is to be supported by Christians in every different way. People who walk with us, who minister with us, who encourage us, who, who rejoice when we rejoice, who mourn when we mourn. The local church needs to be a supporting ministry of one another as we all engage in the warfare about which Paul speaks. Here's a second resource, and I just describe it as a prophetic confirmation. Now you read the end of verse, 19, or verse 18, and you, you might get a little confused. After calling Timothy my child, Paul adds this, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Paul's statement about prophecies made about Timothy might lead to a whole lot of questions. Let me give some explanations. Miracles are always possible. None of us could say that. We don't live in a closed universe as if only laboratories can determine what is real and true and right. God's word makes clear that God is God over all things, natural and supernatural, and God can do whatever he wants to do based upon him. But at the same time, it's fair to say that miracles were utilized in a unique way, in a magnified sense, in the era of Jesus and his apostles. In fact, I think there's three reasons why miracles were so 
so important and had a magnified role in the life and ministry of Jesus and in that first generation of his disciples, the apostles. Here's the first. The, the miracles were used to give confirmation and explanation to the ministry of Jesus and his apostles. They confirmed apostolic authority. They, they gave verification that this was the work of God. They, they made it obvious. Like, in a sense, God, God began with a, with a massive start to the, to the beginning of the Christian movement to make clear that this was a thing of God and not a thing of humanity. Here's the second reason why it was more common in the era of Jesus and his apostles. Uh, because it helped establish leaders before the offices of pastor and elder and deacon were formally established. So, so it designated, God made clear, he appointed people in miraculous ways. Even these prophetic utterances or communications in, in a, a special way so as to establish leaders for that growing early Christian ministry, which now by his spirit he has, he has confirmed through the offices in the church like pastor, elder, and deacon, offices that we will be talking about more even in these letters. A third reason miracles were more common in those days is that they were used to communicate instructions to God's people before the word of God was completed. Now we have a full 66 books of God's word. We have clear instruction about doing this or doing that or how God works or just revelatory truths that we can turn to as God's people. Before the writing and the finalizing of God's word, God graciously revealed these truths to his apostles and his ministers in that unique era. So what about now? How are we to interpret this language of prophecies made about Timothy? Well, another way to understand this is that prophecy can have, it can be understood to have two senses, a technical sense and a general sense. The technical sense means that prophecy in a technical sense is a supernatural thing, a foretelling, right? Foretelling, seeing something in the future that is yet to happen. But prophecy can have a general sense of a, just simply a natural thing, a natural thing that reflects the will and the ways of the Lord by means of providence. And often when we speak of Prophecy in a general sense, we say foretelling. So there's the distinction. Special sense of prophecy, foretelling. General sense of prophecy, foretelling. While foretelling is this, this revelatory awareness made about something yet to happen, foretelling is that leading of God by his providence through natural means by which he directs our, his will and our ways. An example of that might be in my, own, in my own life, wrestling as I was finishing seminary and looking to do doctoral work. I was, I was wrestling with those two options. I'm 26, soon to turn 27. I just finished my master's work. I was accepted into a British PhD program, and I got offered a full-time job at a local church near Trinity in the Chicago suburbs. I was literally invited to work with the senior pastor in, where I'd be just getting exposed to all aspects of a, of a church to which, in which Laura and I had been serving and ministering 
for the last three years. Now, I remember we, we had my in-laws come in from Minnesota, and we're having a pancake and egg breakfast uh, in the morning, and I'm talking to my father-in-law about these things, and he just kind of looks across the table from me, and then I was torn. Like, in fact, to be honest with you, I was leaning a bit more toward taking the church job, just being a bit fatigued from school, needing to support uh, our, our family and the responsibilities that I had and thinking, well, maybe I'll do school, but that, that just, that, there's a lot of risk there. There's a lot of extra cost, etc. And My father-in-law uh, putting syrup on his pancakes or eating his eggs kind of looked up at me and said, you know, you'll never be more suited to go. But you'll, you'll never be more suited. You have, you, your, your wife is excited about the adventure. You're at the top of your game as a student. I mean, just two, three, four, five years later, some of those skill sets fade a little bit. You've got no kids whatsoever. He's like, if I were you, I'd go. And it was significant because I was wrestling with all these things, but, but, the, but the wisdom, the guidance, the confirmation from my father-in-law, somebody who was on the inside, not just an outside observer who's like, well, that's a better option for a career, but somebody who loved me, obviously loved his daughter, was saying, these are the times you make those moves. Get it done now. Well, it's fresh while you're young, before you have two or three kids in tow that you're trying to take across the pond. Things like that are ways, right? Nothing you can put your finger on and say that was specifically the inspired word of God. No, not at all. But God, by natural means, according to his providence, opens paths and ways for us to go. Even just me being accepted by the school, which was highly competitive, are ways that God's providence speaks. Now, evidence that this this Use of prophecy here in verse 18 is the general sense of prophecy rather than the specific sense might be found elsewhere in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul says this to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have. So notice there's gifting that was gifting recognized. Then he says this, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, the language there in 1 Timothy 4.14 is speaking about the public ordination of Timothy as a minister, as a pastor of the gospel, meaning clearly that there were, there were leaders in this early Christian movement that recognized in Timothy, and Paul is one of them, the gifting and the skill set and the, and, and the propensity for successful ministry. And God leads in those ways. God works in that. He calls us, people exhort us, we minister because people see in us a skill set or they see a faithfulness and a fruitfulness that they think would work. And God, through a, through a collection of those ways, guides his people. And that's a sense of prophecy that I think it is happening here. There was a recognition of Timothy's gifting for ministry the confirmation of God's appointment, and the affirmation and announcement by the congregation that 1 Timothy 4.14 speaks about. While not all pastor, well, not all of us are pastors, not all of us are going to be ordained for gospel ministry or confirmed in that official sense. Every Christian 
So ministry is recognized, is confirmed by the body of Christ. Every Christian has people in the life of the church, whether it's pastor elders, whether it's brothers and sisters saying, hey, you are, just, you are so good with what you do with our kids or the teaching you do in a growth hour, or one of our ABFs or adult classes, the facilitating of a small group, your gift of hospitality and mercy, your, your ability just to work with the technical things needed in our building or, or, or helping hands ministry or working with our men or working with our women. I mean, you name it. There are many of us, each of us have probably had individuals in our Christian lives speak into us and see both faithfulness and fruitfulness. So there's not only personal support for the war that Paul calls us uh, to engage in, but there's also what we could use the Bible's own language, prophetic confirmation. That is public recognition and even ordination, like confirmation of God's assignment for us in different times, in different ways. The last, and it's the beginning of verse 19, the last resource Paul mentions is what I'm summarizing as perseverance and purity. Paul uses the language that we wage this war by holding faith and a good conscience. Faith is that personal act of trusting and submitting to God. Good conscience is letting God purify us to work in us. In fact, it's interesting about this, when we think about the war, which we'll talk about in a minute, what is this war? When we think about the war, it's easy for us to think of a war outside, like we're being attacked. But that's not even how the New Testament often speaks about this war. This war is as much in us as anything. Peter says this in, in, in 1 Peter 2.11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war, there's that word, which wage war against your soul. So when, when Paul is exhorting us to wage the good warfare, and he's talking about you're going to need support from your brothers and sisters. You're, you're, you're going to need confirmation that the role you have in this war fits who you are. But you're also going to need to fight this war by holding on to your faith, persevering, and by a purity, a good conscience. By letting God work in you first. The Christian life requires that we be spiritually engaged as individuals. That we are working to guard our soul. The war isn't just out there. The war is in here. And what we should see is a posture of humility and brokenness and worshipfulness in and among the lives of our people. That is a warrior church. Not just a culture warrior that's got an apologetic for every kind of evil that they want to rebuke and condemn, but a people who will have a contrite heart, who are broken before a holy God. Those are the warriors that God seeks. It's interesting that in our passage, Paul gives an example of two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have not done that. He, 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 he said that they rejected the faith and the good conscience, and they shipwrecked their faith. It even talks about this language of them being handed over to Satan. Now be careful when you hear that. I think that could sound quite harsh. But the reality is, is that such language is describing in Bible terms the process of the collective corporate ministry of the church, and specifically church discipline. 
The goal of church discipline, something that should be happening in all of our churches, the goal of church discipline is not, is not punishment. It's not punitive. The goal is restoration. The goal is that people would see what they've left, what they've lost. The goal is that they would be redeemed, that they would come back to God. The goal is also, to be honest with you, is protection. Protect the body, the sheep, from the wolves that would try to enter in and would to harm. We have practiced church discipline in this body, and we do so not because we enjoy it. To be honest, if you were to talk to any of the elders, they would, they would, they would say immediately that this is one of the most difficult aspects of the job that, that, that we have been assigned. But it is important, not only for the protection of the congregation as a whole, but as a restorative ministry in the lives of the people who have chosen to rebel against God. For us not to speak truth, for us not to do spiritual surgery, so to speak, to something that is killing an individual is its own form of malpractice. Paul says that here as well. Well, let me end with my, my, my second and last point this morning. You might be asking the question, okay, I understand that Paul's exhorting Timothy and therefore us through God's word to wage the good warfare, and I see that there's resources for that, but what's the war exactly? Christians are exhorted to wage war, but we need to define carefully what is the good fight. This passage is loaded with military imagery. And the, the stated goal is to wage the good warfare. But what fight is Paul talking about? What's the war? Now, now thankfully, we have the rest of the New Testament to help us with this. Paul uses similar language throughout his letters. And it is always referring to engaging in the good and noble tasks related to the gospel. So this war is a gospel war. So what does that mean? Well, clearly in 1 Timothy 1, it involves false doctrine, which we've already talked about the last few weeks. It involves, therefore, false teachers. And even as we can see in verse 20 today, it involves Satan himself. It's a spiritual gospel war we are fighting. Paul uses language in Ephesians 6 that might be helpful to note, and it's in your notes for you to read. Paul says this, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, notice this is war language. Paul goes on in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Note that. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Oh, that's a big war. That's, that's, that's bigger than the kind of wars and I think we probably normally would think about. These are cosmic wars, heavenly places wars, spiritual battles involving Satan. What does that look like for the church? How is the church involved in such things? Or maybe a better question is, how can we be sure we are waging poor, the, the war as Paul teaches it? Like, How do we know? Let me give you kind of a, a category, a rule of thumb to know which war that Paul's talking about. And the categories are special and common grace. Special grace things are rooted in God as our Redeemer. 
common grace things are rooted in God as our creator. So if it is something that is created, that all people everywhere have, that's a common grace thing. If it's connected to God as Redeemer and rooted in our redemption, that's a special grace thing because it's only something that Jesus provides and that is only for those who accept him by faith. We make a real mistake, though, when we apply special grace categories to common grace things. Here would be my concern about the wars you and I think we're fighting. We make a real mistake when we apply special grace categories to common grace things. Culture wars of socialism, Marxism, capitalism are common grace battles. They are wrestling with what is the common good. And those are things that are worthy of fighting and discussing and, and, and thinking about from a Christian perspective. But those are common grace battles. Special grace battles involve not a better life, but eternal life. Not a better country, but God's kingdom. Not a better ruler, but the eternal king. So here's a test. Here's a test to know if the battle you and I think we're fighting is the war that Paul's talking about. If it has an end, it's a common grace battle. Like if it has an end. Let me give you two examples of things that we so easily uh, just get absorbed into that have an end that we need to think about Christianly. One, would, one that is interesting to think about is marriage. According to Luke 20, the teaching of Jesus, we will not be married in heaven. Now that is a remarkable fact. Some people in our congregation have been married coming on 60 years. They, can't even, they barely remember some of the details of, of anything they experienced in life before they were married. And, and to think about not being married, we also, as, as humans and as Christians, they talk about marriage all the time. There are over a million love songs. Uh, if you're single, you feel like you're missing something, as if marriage is the end-all goal. Yet clearly, it is something that has an end. So if we were to absorb our lives in the goal of being married or the reality of marriage without denying that this is a good, common grace gift that we should enjoy and pursue, but if we were to make that our end all, then we are making our end all in a common grace thing that has an end rather than the special grace gifts of God. Human relationships, that is, find their end in God. You think about the rebuke, therefore, that Christians should have of the dominance of romance in our lives without denying that we need to make better marriages and we need to be fighting against divorce and we need to be defining marriage correctly and we need to be exhorting proper marital relations and human sexuality and all of those things, amen and yes. But even still, while we're all in that, it's not fully consuming us at the same time because it's a common grace thing. You can be two believers who have a happy marriage together and you can be two non-believers who participate in marriage. Here's another example that we might talk about and this we get from 1 Peter when we think about our country. 1 Peter says this, but you are talking to the church, to Christians, you are a holy nation. I mean, my citizenship is, I have a dual citizenship. One that is temporary 
and one that is eternal, one that is a common grace citizenship, and one that is a special grace one. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Look at verse 11 in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, is that how you see yourself? As immigrants in this land, on this planet, this old creation waiting for the new, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Look at how that war is connected to our identity. So if human relationships aren't an end in themselves, but find their end and their goal in God, so human citizenship, or hear this, human politics are not an end in themselves, but find their goal and end in God. So let me, let me end by speaking into our current moment through this text. Two pastoral applications. When we spiritualize common grace things, we make created and temporary things an idol and worship almost always follows. Like it is impossible not to have worship follow. The Bible calls this idolatry something natural being given supernatural significance. When something natural is given supernatural significance, it's idolatry. When something natural like marriage becomes my end-all goal, that is idolatry. When something like a love for country becomes all the overwhelming thing for which I'm the most passionate and the most vicious in my attack and defense, we have entered into a form of worship of a created and a temporary thing. In one, there will be a day where I will not have my primary relationship be with my wife, Laura. And I will not have my primary relationship be as a citizen of the United States. Like Christians have this eternal perspective to know what is most true and right, what the goal is. So when, when we spiritualize common grace things, created and temporary things become an idol that we soon worship. Think about examples. Our kids. This is a child-centered culture. Our spouse. Love and romance dominate. Money, fame. Those are easy to taste and see. Those are idolatries. Those are things that have an end. How about issues? They could be social issues. They could be national issues. They dominate our discourse. In many ways, brothers and sisters, this is driven by what we find our identity in, what, what our allegiance is to. What's our identity in? Love and romance, is that, does that drive everything I want to do and say? Everything I think? Kids, kid-centered, I mean, literally, church, friends, relationships, money, everything, because it's all going to be invested in kids in whom I'm living vicariously. My identity is rooted in them. Or some version of uh, conservative politics dominates that. That's all I talk about. My Facebook feed is loaded with those kind of things. Uh, anybody I disagree with is the arch enemy. And anybody that there could be any questions about, I herald unreasonably. So what's your devotional life like? Scripture would say. Not just do you read your Bible. 
To whom or to what are you devoted? What issues and people do you think about the most? Have you, in doing so, spiritualized common grace things? If so, then it, there's a good chance you're not waging the war that Paul's talking about. Second application and, and last thing is when we prioritize common grace fights over special grace fights, we become distracted from the gospel and the ministry assigned to the church. Paul gave a clear warning in the beginning of 1 Timothy when he said, do not teach any different doctrine nor promote speculations rather than advancing God's work. Brothers and sisters, we have Christian freedom to engage in common grace activities and advance issues that we believe are in the best interest of the common good. You can fight all day long for tax policies that you prefer and use or lack of use of guns or the best kind of health care you would want or governing principles and practices that you think are good for this country. Absolutely. You can love your country and actively participate in this democratic process. For sure. But you should never do this in a way that dominates your time and thinking and your focus away from the work of the gospel in personal ministry, or one that exaggerates the significance of the fight so that it denies God's sovereign purposes or distracts you and others from the ultimate eternal things. There are brothers and sisters, I'm recording this on Inauguration Day, January 20th, and even yesterday hearing of people in our church who are just convinced that potentially this is all going to collapse. Uh, there'll be some kind of martial law, some kind of attack and warfare. Are the soldiers there to defend Biden or are they there to defend Trump? Well, in this moment, the inauguration is yet to happen, but Trump has already flown, at least according to what it sure looks like, to Florida. Can you imagine the domination of people's thinking that they're hiding in their homes, watching the TV to see what happens? Or the exaggeration of the significance of that fight? Brothers and sisters, in this cultural moment, America needs the church to advance God's work. What causes have you been fighting the most? How would you define what your ministry focus is? A battle against Marxism? Socialism? Battle for conservatism? Fine and good. Are those the wars that Paul's talking about? Will they have an end one day? What about your ministry to advance the gospel? Again, it doesn't mean we can't have positions politically and culturally. It doesn't mean that there aren't wars worth fighting for the common good, defining sexuality right, marriage right, caring for the most people we can with the common grace gifts of God. Absolutely. But to live in fear or to make this cultural moment exaggerated or dominated in our mind and practices misses what the Word of God would say. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Maybe we need to remember this in moments in our country like this. Talking about the gospel, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I wish, I hope, that we at Hope Evangelical Free Church as Christians of the true king, could be able to separate the spiritual grace battle to which we've been called from the common grace battles pulling at us from below. We could fully participate in common grace activities for the good and glory of God and the good of all people, but we never lose sight of the war that we're supposed to wage and the goal that we have. We never lose hope because we persevere with purity. We're supported by our brothers and sisters. We've been confirmed in this by God's word and God's people. Hold fast, Christians. Hold fast as you wage the good warfare. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear from your word and help your word even as we're working through this biblical text, to speak into our context, to, to minister into this situation, Lord. Where there's so much uncertainty, may our church family see what is the true war. That the war involves the gospel and gospel ministry. Father, help us not to put our weight or our effort too strongly in temporary things. Help, help us to regain an eternal perspective, Father, not only for the good of the, the work of God and the mission of the church, but Father, I pray for our own souls. I pray for the, those who even today hide in their homes, unsure of what's going to happen. Father, that's just over a common grace thing. We're not even talking about the work of the Redeemer. We're just talking about the work of the Creator. Help us, Father, to understand what the war is, to put our trust in you, to focus on the gospel, and to be a prophetic voice, forth-telling voice in our culture about the things of God. Father, I pray that for this church and our churches around us. In Jesus' name, amen.